0: Father God, we come before you again, body of your people, ready to hear your word. Please open up your word to our hearts and open up our hearts to your word. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. So this, you may have noticed, is a familiar parable. The parable of the prodigal son, sometimes given a fancy, less conventional name, like the parable of the lost son, or the parable of the two sons, or the parable of the gracious father. It's one of the best-known and most enduring parables that Jesus ever used. Maybe edged out for the top spot by the Good Samaritan. Hard to say. Tight race, that one. <coughs> but even if someone doesn't know the original tale, they know the archetype from the foundations of that story. Now, I haven't seen movies like Legends of the Fall or Big Fish, which are apparently both good movies with that prodigal son theme. I have seen The Lion King. Um, and so that's what I chose for my comparison presently. Now, the Lion King is often shelved away as Hamlet with animals, um, but one doesn't have to look too far and, and twist it too much to see some prodigal son theme work in. Simba, the prince of the lions, flees his father's kingdom, under in his case rather than greed, but nonetheless does spend quite a time frittering away his time in the wilderness, eating the food of pigs, in fact. Um, is Reunion with his father does not go quite the way that the prodigal sons does in Luke 15. Uh, Mufasa does not run out to meet his son so much as manifest mysteriously in the clouds to reassure him. Um, Which is something of a cop-out, I think. If he was half the lion that Aslan from Narnia is, he could have pulled off a proper resurrection. (laughs) But the great storyteller Jesus told the story most memorable in this first form The disgruntled son demands free money now to enjoy his inheritance while he is young. His conspicuously agreeable father yields to the demand. A long road trip and an economically punishing bout of wild living later, he finds himself feeding pigs just to get by and feeding them with the food that he wishes he could eat, literally putting this Jewish boy beneath swine. On the level of patheticness in the story. Eventually, he is sufficiently humiliated, sufficiently humbled, and he returns home to where he came from, prepared to face maybe further humbling just for a chance at something better than what he was dealing with. And he famously finds himself reinstated into the family with full honors. Now, as David said, we're, we're starting this series on transformation. This is week one, and we're talking about spiritual transformation, how God transforms us spiritually in our relationship to him and the way that he guides us and grows us. So we're not exegeting Luke 15 verse by verse, like I often like to, but we are using it as our key passage um, to extrapolate this idea of spiritual growth and spiritual transformation And so out of this passage, we're going to take four directions, four kind of markers that precede spiritual transformation that are necessary to improve our spiritual health and our connection with God. And they all have something to do with up. So hopefully, that'll be super memorable. But the first is fed up. The first thing you need to be for spiritual transformation is fed up. Fed up with being in Christian mediocrity, or tired of nodding along to sermons and not really quite getting it and letting it slip by. And entirely done with being the only one in a life group who doesn't have reams of interesting stories about their work with God. Verses 17 to 20 say this. When he came to his senses, that is, when he came to his senses, became fed up. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. This transition from wandering vagrant to forgiven son does not occur naturally. It is not a normal thing that happens it comes on the heels of a decision. The son comes to his senses. He has a moment of clarity and turns around and returns to his father's side. He needed to be sufficiently disgusted with himself, shamed by his position, and in the spirit of the political jargon to salute yesterday's election, he needed to be counter-incentivized to the point where he decided to abandon his denial that his bon vivant life was providing him with and take another option. The only option left to him, in fact. And this is true for the man or woman who has never known a relationship with God as well. When they're broken by life circumstances and hard turns, they seek a meaningful change. And the only really meaningful change is to find in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But it's also true for the believer in Christ who has followed for a long time but hasn't experienced anything they could call spiritual growth in a long time, who is spiritually stagnant, who decides they want now to know God better and they are prepared to do something about it. I had such a moment seven or eight years ago. I would come alone to this church because I was not well connected here yet. Uh, My family is not a church-going family, so I'd come by myself, usually sit in the back row because it's easiest to get to the door right after the sermon is over, got what I needed out of here. And after a while, I kind of got fed up that I decided I was being childish, and I need to be more serious about the whole thing, and the first decision I made was to try and sit in the front row as often as I can, every time, which is why I'm still towards the front row just about every time now. That puts me between, well, that puts between me a gauntlet of smiling faces and interesting people between me and the door, and it makes egress not quite so simple. That was the day I decided I wanted to really get serious about being part of the church and pursuing God. I did remember distinctly feeling like I was kind of faking it and wanted to stop kind of faking it. And I just needed that prompt to get me there. And Some people respond to a prompt in their heart to get serious about a relationship with the Lord of the universe. Some people need a few prompts from God to get there. That's all right. God is patient and he has a variety of prompts from choose from. Some of them are gentle. Some of them are pointy. For some, it takes nothing short of the desolation of their worldview or some... Calamity or failure to make them rethink everything they know to come to Christ. In the prodigal son's case, his rock bottom was pouring out these buckets of slop that made his mouth water. For feeding the most disgusting animal in Jewish tradition. God will bring his followers into a closer relationship with him. However he needs to do it. Rick Warren of Saddleback Church puts it this way. God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. He loves you too much to leave you there. And the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse 13, says this. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. with all your heart. Believing in our saviour is meant to be a life-changing decision. It can't be done casually or half-heartedly with success. If you feel bland and disengaged from spiritual growth, perhaps you are not quite fed up yet. But you'll get there, one way or another. So the first was fed up, the next part is own up. Once you are fed up, then you must own up. The son's response in this story begins with a realization that his situation is ridiculous, it's demeaning, it's poisonous and it shouldn't be this way. He's fed up. He comes to his senses and then in verse 18, he sets out with this new intention. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. One can be fed up with the outcome of a situation without ever admitting fault and then find very little spiritual growth in their life. This is true first and foremost for our sins against God. So when we are pursuing spiritual health, that unconfessed sin before God can cut off a saint at the knees in their attempts to get to know him. The book of Isaiah chapter 59 says... Your sins have separated you from God and have hidden his face from you. It's the very nature of sin to divide us from God that is really the core of what it does. It's the reason Jesus came to die, to take it away. It was dividing us from him. For those who have not received that saving grace of Jesus Christ, that is a fatal, damning division. Sin is dragging them to hell and refusing to own up to God about our sinfulness. In that case, is like a drowning person grabbing a falling anchor instead of a lifeline to get back on the ship. But for believers, while sin can no longer damn, it no longer has that power, it can certainly interpose itself into the faith life of Christians between them and God. In John chapter 13, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples in an act of ultimate humility. The God of the universe made flesh, scrubbing away at the calloused feet of 12 effectively homeless wanderers, his disciples. And when he does this, this isn't just good hygiene, he's offering up a picture of sin and confession the once and for all cleansing that he would provide with his coming death, but also the need for believers to continue to confess their individual sins to preserve that relationship with the Lord. John writes, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist and after that, He poured a basin of water and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And then Simon Peter does an amazingly quick about face. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And then Jesus shoots him down again. Poor Peter. (laughs) Jesus answered, those who have have had a bath need only wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew that one was going to betray him And that is why he said not everyone was clean. Judas was not clean because he was not a genuine follower of Christ. He hadn't received that washing to take away his sins. And in some way, the disciples already had. They were on that trajectory. They were part of God's family. But the other disciples, they had later the chance to understand this, that that blood of Jesus provided that spiritual bath that washed away their sins once and for all. And after that comes only this foot-washing maintenance to deal with that kind of cleanliness of sin. That confession, that regular returning to God, the keeping short accounts and owning up to God about what we've done. And likewise, admitting our culpability in sinning against one another is critical because loving God's people is part of the way we go about loving God. And if you've ever received an insincere apology, you know the substantial difference between someone being genuinely remorseful about a wrongdoing or just being half-hearted. Have you ever received a not-quite-I'm-sorry, but an I'm-sorry-if-you-thought, or a I'm-sorry-if-I-came-off-that-way, or I'm-sorry-you-feel-that-way? Not at all morally satisfying or relationship-repairing as an actual willingness to accept responsibility. Now, on the flip side of that, have you ever expected a confrontation with someone and then spent half an hour or more rehearsing what you're going to say in your head, mapping out the conversation and imagining how clever you're going to be when you guess their every word? They'll bring up this and I'll be like, "Mm." and then they'll go, but I'll say, "Mm." and that will show them and it looked like I was making it all up on the spot. But when you speak to the person, you get halfway through the first line. I've got a bone to pick with you, and then they own up completely. I'm sorry, you're right, I shouldn't have. I thought, but that's no excuse. Morally, that's satisfying to the offense. All you have to deal with then is this wasted script left in your head of the righteous indignation you were going to just pop off. But that's all right. You can use it later on someone else. (laughs) And to top it off, because of the nature of our creator as a forgiver and a God invested in our love for one another, there's this natural impulse when someone makes themselves vulnerable to us with an apology to re-examine our side of the question. Because when someone says, I'm sorry, the natural impulse is to say, I'm sorry too even if you weren't four seconds ago. And now suddenly you are. And as one side lays down arms, it becomes very hard for the other not to, and it requires some real dedication to bitterness or some deep, long-running hurt not to want resolution swiftly after that genuine owning up. So we've got fed up, own up, and the third marker now, on the way to spiritual growth, offering up. The man of the parable becomes fed up. He comes to his senses. He owned up. I've sinned against my father and God. And now in Luke fifteen nineteen, he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Contrast this make me statement with the earlier verse 12. Give me my share of the estate. Make me and give me. And this may sound like a small semantic difference, but Christ could have told the story differently if he wanted to. And I think there's a real contrast here between entitlement and the humility that happens when he offers himself up to his father. When the son begins his part in the story, he's not interested in being anything but what he wants to be. He has decided that the inheritance that has been promised to him is actually owed to him. That he deserves it in some fashion. And he wants it added to him right now. He, the son, is not the one who is going to change. He is morally right as far as he is concerned. I lost a friend once over something like this when I confronted her about an aspect of her behavior I thought was self-destructive. And her response was to tell me, don't ever try and change my mind about anything. So I had to let that friendship lapse. I had to tell her because I wasn't interested in being part of someone's completely unconditional cheer squad. I have no use for friends who don't care enough about me to warn me when I'm doing something stupid. And I can't imagine being that kind of friend to someone else. But this love me for who I am kind of mentality can run amok. That statement, to love someone just for who they are, is so popularly enshrined, so often repeated, so aphoristically powerful now that it's taken as if it's just intuitively wise on its own, like it doesn't need to be examined, as if there isn't something wrong with it. Who we are changes over time. It changes over time with our experience, our sufferings, our triumphs, our influences. We love people for what we admire in them and what we share with them. Shared history, shared values, shared blood, shared friendship. This idea that our personhood is made in the image of God is one of our core beliefs in Jesus Christ, in this church of Jesus Christ. But the idea that our personality necessarily carries a divine stamp of approval, that is not one of those things. And sometimes that requires change. So the son in the story confronts the father and says, you owe me one third of your net worth. Two sons, older son gets two shares, possibly why the younger son is so miffed right now. Give me that money so I can spend it the way I want to now. And with that, an unspoken but implicit, if you respect me or love me as your son, you will do this for me. Because the father could say no, but he's not going to. Realistically, he has two options here. He can say no and risk his son becoming further embedded and closed off from him. Or he can yield to the demand and hope that the exercise would be so, dist- so uh, instructive that it would humble him and bring him back around. And we know that he does the latter in the story, but... There is no conceivable world where the father put in this position would approve of this action just because it came from someone he loves. Okay, son, you're a greedy, self-entitled monster, but I love you for who you are. Here's your money. Never improve. There's a a whole school of people who want this tailor-made savior, a tailor-made Christ, One who fits their personal desires and requirements for spiritual fulfillment. The white Jesus or the black Jesus. The God who helps them help themselves. Who approves of their actions from a distance, far enough away that he can't ask questions. And just wants us all kind of to be happy. As an owner of a fish tank, might like to see his butterfly koi flitting around the plastic seaweed and resin castles without any actual interest in Acquiring anything from them or talking to them. That is the God that we make in our image, and He's not terribly impressive. That's a vapid and useless God. Those who love us are interested and invested in the kind of people we are and what we are making ourselves into. And the God who loves us is the only one with the right and the wisdom to dictate what kind of person we should be striving to be. The God who loves us is the only one with the right and the wisdom to dictate what kind of person we are striving to be. And so the son says, I am not worthy to be called your son. Make me a servant. Change my status. Make me this thing. The son asks the father to change his status, to make him into something of value from the worthless thing he feels he now is, a failed son, into a possibly passable servant. Likewise, once we're fed up to make our change and we own up to our sin, we need to offer ourselves up to God for his purposes and commit to him those areas of our lives we were conducting ourselves sinfully in or slothfully in or trying privately to keep away from him. We must offer ourselves up to God to grow spiritually. So we got fed up, own up, offer up, and finally lift up. To lift up our praise in worship of him intimately part of our relationship with god is this way in which we worship him and sometimes that requires singing even those of us who do not like to sing or have a pretty snappy line about how badly we sing now yeah, it sounds like a cat soaring on a violin or something those who choose not to sing usually have something preloaded and chambered ready to go if someone asks them why they're not singing I know that I'm rhythmically deficient in such a way that I can only do a couple of things at once while the music is going on. So when a song comes on and there's an invitation to clap, I've got sing, clap, and focus on God, choose any two. Usually it's sing and focus, otherwise I become the doofus who is standing next to you clapping on the offbeat. Otherwise, I become really careful about how I sing and clap in time. But by the time I get to the end of that song, it was just an ordeal and I haven't thought at all about God. So I usually clap through the instrumentals and then drop it off. I recommend that if that's something that troubles you. <laughs> Occasionally, obviously clapping is an optional thing, but singing is the way we most basically lift up our praises to God. We lift up communally our praises to God. He likes it. He's worth praising. Verse 23 and 24 of our passage say this about the father's response to his son's return and humility. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now a question of speculative theology. If the son had come back to the father but did not own up to his mistakes or offer himself up humbly in whatever form could be accepted, do we suppose the father would have been quite so overjoyed? Well, this is speculation, but since this parable is about returning to God through repentance, we must assume not. We have to conclude that his son being dead and now being alive again is not just a matter of him being absent and now present. But it's about the loss and the regaining of that loving relationship that started fraying apart when the son made that selfish demand and broke away from the father. And the father's response in this is to celebrate. He celebrates, he invites his redeemed son to celebrate, he invites his workers to celebrate. And these earlier verses in this chapter, in chapter 15, contain two mirror parables of the prodigal son, two that have the same, uh, same message in them. The first is the lost sheep, where the shepherd goes off to find his lost sheep, finds it, and then invites his neighbors over saying, come rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. The next one is the parable of the lost coin. It ends with the widow who loses a coin constituting a significant amount of her net wealth. She finds it again, invites her neighbors over, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost coin. Now, there is a pattern here, and it doesn't require a lot of investigation to find out, but somehow we miss it often when we're gliding over these passages. I know I have. It's possible to have an image of the Father, an image of God, as this austere, unmoving, shining figure on a throne. Something like the Lincoln Memorial if someone spangled it with LEDs. But Jesus tells us three times here that the author of our lives and the creator of this world does not just command us to celebrate or does not just command the angels to celebrate, but he himself celebrates when his lost ones are reunited with him the God of this world celebrates when we return to him. And if the eternal God is celebrating our return to him through the cross of Christ, how could we ever justify praising his goodness with anything less than a full heart and a full voice? So once we're fed up, we can repent and own up, And once we've owned up, we can offer ourselves up to recommitment to God's will for our lives. And once we've spiritually washed our feet in this way, we must lift up our voices and praise him. We must lift up our worship to him who washes us and saves us. Lest we think for a second that our spiritual health depends on our striving rather than the saving sacrifice of Jesus Christ... We remember that we weren't just spiritually dirty before Christ came to us. We were spiritually dead. And Christ's sacrifice regenerates us. It raises us back to life spiritually and into a relationship with him. So let's lift up our prayers to God now and then after that we'll lift up our voices again to worship our Savior God. Let's pray. Father God, you sent your Son to die for us on the cross so that we could be restored to you. And once restored to you, you and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to guide us and to keep us as your people, and we thank you. We ask your Spirit to convict us of our sins so that we might become uncomfortable in the places we do not obey and to become ready to repent. Hear our prayers, Lord, when we confess what we have done and we own up to our offenses. Lord, we offer ourselves back to you, your creation resubmitted to your loving hand so that we might be able to become what you would make of us and to serve you better in that way. And Lord, we are humbled by the idea that you would celebrate us As we lift up our hearts to praise you, King of kings, who rules the heavens and the earth. And when we were not worthy, chose to call us his daughters and sons. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs)